Hello, everyone. I'm Patrick. And I'm Tony. And welcome to Cave of the Cross Apologetics, where we apply God's word to philosophical thought. And we do the heavy lifting, so you can do it with us, too. Uh, so thank you for joining us. Uh, we're taking a pause, uh, depending on where we're at in, in our um, uh, Nancy Piercy book. Uh, we'll get back to that. But today we have the absolute pleasure of uh, talking to one of our fellow Kalamazooians. And uh, uh, unfortunately, because uh, we all have cooties, uh, we can't meet in person like we wanted to, but that's okay. Uh, but I want to introduce uh, Dr. Lydia McGrew, who is a widely published a published analytic philosopher, homeschooling mother, author, and wife of philosopher and apologist Tim McGrew. She received her PhD in English from Vanderbilt University in 1995. She has published extensively in the theory of knowledge, specializing in formal epistemology and its applications to the evaluation of testimony and to the philosophy of religion. She is the author of Hidden in Plain View, Undesigned Consequences in the Gospel of Acts, which defends the reliability of the New Testament using a long-neglected argument from uh, incidental details, which we'll talk about, and her new book, The Mirror or the Mask, Liberating the Gospel from Literary Devices, provides further evidence for the robust historicity of the Gospels. And so we have the absolute pleasure of welcoming Dr. McGrew to our show. Thank you for coming. Thanks for having me, Patrick and Tony. It's great yeah. to meet you guys. Too. Um, so, so I should probably tell you that uh, Tim was my uh, master's thesis advisor at Western Several, many, many years ago, but. How many? <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Who's this going to out, though? Yeah. Tim or Tony? <laughs> a long, long, like, you know, a long, have, long Have we time met ago. before? And I, I just forgot? Have. Yeah. Yeah, okay. we have, we've met. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I am sorry to have not recalled. Yeah, that's okay. Uh, Tony was on the head of the elder board for our church that got um, uh, uh, Jay Warner Wallace uh, over uh, a couple years ago for the, for the, for your guys' conference. He was in the, yes, he was at that conference. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Great. Um, so uh, just kind of an open question, because uh, I'm, I'm really interested in how you got interested in the field of philosophy and apologetics. Well, I was always interested because Tim was interested and we talked, we talked all the time about all of these things. Um, Tim was interested in apologetics even before we got married. You know, when he was a a teenager, an older teenager, when he first got into philosophy, he was uh, deeply influenced by John Warwick Montgomery, Mm. the Lutheran apologist, historical apologist. And uh, then there's a whole, whole long story that I won't go into, but we began writing philosophy articles, co-authoring them. Right. and that kind, <laughs> yeah, it was. I was interested in the topics, and I began doing research so that I could. I actually did contribute. Um, I was not just copy editing or something. We were actually co-writing these, <laughs> and um, you know, in epistemology and the theory of knowledge. And then we got interested in uh, something that Dr. Alvin Plantinga had done, where he had said some negative things about the historical. Uh, case for the resurrection, which kind of shocked people and people didn't know what to do because he was, you know, a very eminent Christian philosopher. And here he was saying negative things about the uh, argument for the resurrection in, in particularly in Richard Swinburne's formulation. So Tim and I got involved in writing and responding to what Plantinga had uh, said there. That brought us to the attention of William Lane Craig and J.P. Moreland, which resulted in our writing on um the resurrection in the Blackwell Companion to Natural uh, Theology. And that's going back, I believe, was published in 2009, so more than 10 years ago. And um, so then we continued to work in epistemology. We ended up, I started publishing separately, uh, 
you know, articles that I published on my own. And I have quite, quite a long curriculum in philosophy, particularly in formal uh, philosophy and the analysis of testimony independence and that kind of thing, ad hocness, all kinds of things that are obviously very relevant to the Gospels, very relevant to the Gospels. Uh, But at the same time, he was researching, Tim was researching uh, older apologists. He got a grant from the Templeton Foundation to research the history of historical apologetics. Mm. And so then we ended up bringing those together in learning about undesigned coincidences. And he taught me about that. And that got me gradually more and more involved in writing about the reliability of the gospels. So that's like a very brief version of how this all went. There's a lot more detail to it. That's awesome. Yeah. So uh, we're going to start with a hidden in plain view and uh, starts asking a few questions there. And then we're going to move to your, your other book, um, the Mirror or the Mask, and, and we'll, we'll end up with that book. So Hidden in Plain View, this is, um, um, so, uh, the subtitle here is Undesigned Consequences in the Gospels and Acts. So tell us a little bit about uh, this book. You know, what is an undesigned consequence? You know, th- that, that sort of thing. So an undesigned coincidence, I call... Oh, I'm sorry. Coincidence or consequence? Coincidence. Coincidences. I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Co- coincidence. <laughs> right. So you can think of it as like coming together. Um, every time I say this, some uh, humorous person will say, well, by definition, if it's a coincidence, it's undesigned. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, but it's actually an older use of that word from uh, the author William Paley from the 1700s. And what he meant by a coincidence was a coincidence, a coming together. So an undesigned coincidence, I use, I, I like to call it a casual, incidental interlocking that points to truth. So in an undesigned coincidence, you have two testimonies or documents that tell different parts of of reality. Uh, They don't appear to be trying to allude to each other, but they fit together. So I'll give a just a made up modern type of example. One person uh, claims to have witnessed a bank robbery and says the bank robber tripped on his way out the door. And another person claims to have witnessed the same bank robbery. And he says, and I noticed when he walked up to the window, his shoelace was untied. Mm. Now, that's an undesigned coincidence because neither of them mentions what the other one mentions. Right. Mm -hmm. But an untied shoelace could result in tripping. Mm. So they fit together in this casual, seemingly casual way that they're not trying to make it fit together, but uh, it does. It does fit together because they appear both to be describing the truth. So the coincidence has to do with uh, uh, wasn't uh, specifically uh, part of what was supposed to happen or something like that, right? It's kind of an accident kind of thing, right? Well, the undesigned is that they're they're not trying to make it come together. The right. coincidence is that they do fit together. They coincide. Gotcha. Gotcha. The, okay. um, the untied shoelace coincides with the tripping. It fits with it. Right. It comes together. It fits with it. But it's not uh, not designed to do so. So the second guy doesn't say, oh, I bet that was because his shoelace was untied. Right. You know, right. because then, then I mean, he might still be telling the truth. I'm not saying he's not telling the truth, but he's specifically referring to what the first person said. Right. So then it doesn't appear as undesigned. It appears undesigned when neither one refers to what the other one said. Right. Okay. 
okay. I, I, I kind of view uh, what you cover here as uh, kind of our, our positive approach to uh, what we covered in, in uh, uh, Jason Lyle's book. Um, uh, it was keeping faith in the age of reasons where he, he takes these contradictions and say, Oh, look at all these contradictions and answers them. This is almost like, here's, here's two versions of the story as, as uh, Jay Warner Wallace has talked about the, the, the fact that we should be expecting this. If, if uh, we're talking about historical people uh, entering into, to, to a historical narrative and, 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 and relaying what, what they witnessed. Um, and, and this is uh, kind of, Putting, putting the complete picture together. You take mm-hmm. the witness from this one and this one, and they're looking at it from the right side and the left side, and they're 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 bringing the whole picture together. And right. that's one of the reasons why we have kind of four gospels. And it's exciting because you can actually see how they confirm one another. Yeah, I really I really want to go through your book and take little snippets and and do uh, uh, full videos on them. The, the, uh, some of them were just a lot of fun to to read. So um, do that. Uh, what, what, what of yours have been um, kind of your favorite, Wh- which are the ones that, uh, uh, you know, y- you either like personally or that you found within the writing of your book, uh, Hidden in Plain View? Well, you know, C.S. Lewis said about um, uh, the novels of Dickens that his favorite always seemed to be the one he had read last. So <laughs> I, I feel that way a little bit about Undesigned Coincidences. My favorite is always the one I've, I've discovered most recently. You know, it's the one that then I'm that one's the freshest. It's the one I'm the most excited about. So um, I'm going to give an example that's not in uh, Hidden in Plain View. So this is a little bit to the back of the book. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's it's going to be in in it. I don't believe it's in the mirror of the mask either. It's going to be in the eye of the beholder, though, that I'm writing right now. So. In uh, Mark 3, 22, we find that it says that leaders and uh, messengers had come from Jerusalem to Galilee and they were listening to Jesus teach and he was casting out demons. And they said, you cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of the demons. So they're very hostile to him. And it's weird, you know, because in Mark, if you just read Mark, there hasn't been any conflict yet between Jesus and the leaders down in in Jerusalem. I mean, he's hardly been in Jerusalem that we've seen. We haven't seen him in Jerusalem hardly at all. And here they are. And, and, and Galilee was not right next door. You know, it was a good 70, 80 miles in, in Michigan terms. Imagine walking from here to Grand Rapids to go give some guy a hard time. Basically. <laughs> okay. You know, it's just like, why would you do that? Okay. It's very, it's very complicated and confusing uh, as to why they were so hostile. But when we go to John and we go to John 2, we find Jesus cleansing the temple early in his ministry. And he's a little cheeky. They go up to him and say, give us a sign by which you you will show us that you have authority to do that. They're like, who do you think you are? You know, throwing out these merchants and so forth. And he says, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up, which is not really the answer they were looking for, you know, (laughs) so The idea, I think, is that they sent messengers then. You know, when he went back to Galilee, they sent messengers going, go check this guy out. You know, he's he came and he caused a disturbance in the temple and they're already very negatively inclined toward him. Okay, they're going to try to find something to to use against him. But what's interesting is that some scholars will say that John moved the temple cleansing, that Jesus didn't didn't cleanse the temple early in his ministry. 
But this undesigned coincidence actually shows that he did cleanse the temple early in his ministry. And there, there are many other indications that he did. And this is just one small part of the case, but that he appears to have already had a clash uh, in Jerusalem, specifically with the Jerusalem leaders. So their messengers are mentioned in Mark uh, as coming all the way to Galilee to uh, investigate him. And, and so um, we also see that these aren't just uh, time people locations, uh, but these help to also establish things like the miracles. And one, one of my favorites was the, the healing of, of, of the guard's ear that Peter cuts off. Can you talk about that one a little bit? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, John tells us his name was Malchus and we find that um, Peter draws his sword, cuts, cuts off his ear and then in Luke, it mentions that Jesus healed it. <clears throat> Luke is the only gospel that mentions that Jesus healed it. Um, and then you go to John and you have this dialogue between Jesus and Pontius Pilate. There are multiple undesigned coincidences confirming that dialogue, which mm. is really interesting because people will say, oh, they must have been alone. And actually, it doesn't say that they were alone. It just says the leaders did not come in for fear of, of ceremonial defilement. It doesn't say they were completely alone. But um Pilate asks him, uh, are you the king of the Jews? Because, you know, it's this accusation against him, as we learned from Luke. And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. For if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I would not be delivered unto the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Now, you think about that right there in John, his servant was fighting. Peter was fighting. He cut off Malchus's ear. Right. You would think, why would Jesus like bring this up? Why would he bring up? My servants would have been fighting. And if you're just reading John, you just read in the previous chapter about the fighting. But if you go over to Luke, you find that he healed that guy's ear. <clears throat> so imagine if Pilate had gone and said, you know, was there any disturbance or any problem when you arrested this man? Yes, sir, there was. One of his followers cut off somebody's ear. Uh, okay, can I talk to him? Uh, <laughs> what are they, they going to say, right? Yeah. Um, his ear looks fine to me, Pilate yeah. is thinking, right? So they're obviously not going to bring that up. So Jesus knows that he has shown his peaceful intention. He knows that by healing Malchus's ear and telling Peter to put his sword in his sheath, he has shown that his kingdom is not of this world. And so he's not taking any real risk in, in saying that. So that's an example of an undesigned coincidence concerning a miracle. Yeah, yeah that's really good. So, so we have this issue then and um, with regard to John's Gospels and the other three Gospels, right? You, mm -hmm. kind of, you kind of alluded to that a little bit there. It's called the synoptic problem and John is kind of, you know, a guy on his own kind of deal. Can you kind of explain what's going on there and how maybe, uh, you know, undesigned uh, consequences can help us with regard to this issue? Right. So there's there's two different things going on. The, the synoptic problem, which I like to call the synoptic puzzle, concerns which of Matthew, Mark and Luke was written first and who's dependent on what. And uh, undesigned coincidences are relevant to that. But I won't uh, I, I want to get to John. I want right. to get to talking right. about John. So I won't pause and talk about that. I have an entire PowerPoint on the synoptic puzzle and undesigned coincidences, which is cool in and of itself. Um, but it. It is true that there's a lot of overlapping material in these synoptic gospels, whereas John's 
material tends to be unique. He has more unique material. Um, in my forthcoming book, I call him the red-headed stepchild <laughs> yeah. of gospel scholarship. I he looks so bad for John. <laughs> he looks different. He looks different, right? Oh, you don't need to. John can take care of himself. Man. <laughs> anyway, um, but that he looks different. And people will say, you know, why is everybody down on John? And I'll say, because he's different. You know, and part of what's very interesting there is there's a kind of inconsistency in scholarship. On the one hand, they will make much of the idea that Matthew, Mark and Luke are not all independent of one another. That there's some kind of independence relationship there that's very difficult to work out exactly what it is. The most popular view is that Mark was written first and Matthew and Luke are both using Mark. Um, so they're recognizing that their selection of material, especially their selection of material, and sometimes even their very wording is is copied. OK, that they're not just totally independent. I think they are partially independent, um, even in even in similar incidents. But they're not they're not. And if you come along and imply some kind of independence between them, you'll get kind of sneered at. Like, don't you understand that the synoptic, we scholars understand the synoptic gospels are not independent. But then when it comes to John, it's this amazing switcheroo. Uh, I have actually had a very famous scholar, uh, Craig A. Evans, in a debate that I had with him two years ago. He said, I'm counting votes and it's three to one against John. <laughs> Now, my jaw just about dropped when he said that because you don't get to count votes when they're not independent. I mean, this would be like if three people went into the when it went into the voting booth at the same time and consulted with one another. Like, who are you going to vote for? I don't know who are you going to vote for. Right. <laughs> and then you said, oh, they all three, you know, decided that this candidate stinks. It's like, well, they were you know, influencing each other. Yeah, right. Yeah. OK. So especially if we're talking about questions like. Uh, material that John includes that the others don't include or how Jesus sounds the idiom or um, what sayings we have sayings of Jesus that are not in the others. Obviously the other three gospels are influencing one another. And I think John is uh, consciously supplementing. I believe he had access to at least some, if not all of the synoptic gospels. I think he had read them. I mean, I'm going to just go that far and say that because his was the last to be written, he said, well, I'm not going to do the Garden of Gethsemane all over again. That's been done already. OK, I'm going to do it different. I'm going to talk about something different, you know. Um, and so I think he had a very self-consciously supplementary um supplementary goal. Okay. And I think that takes care of a lot of this, yeah. a lot of this concern that John is the only one. And once we also reject the argument from silence and my husband, Tim has a professional paper. This isn't even apropos of the gospels, though it, it is relevant on why the argument from silence is so bad, <laughs> especially when it's used, especially when it's used against testimony. I mean, there are arguments from silence that are good. Like, for example, I don't see a dragon in this room. That probably means that there is no dragon in this room. You could call that an argument from silence, right? The fact that I don't see a dragon. That's because dragons are extremely large and I would probably see one if it were here. But I don't see a spider in this room. It's probably not a spider. That would be a very bad argument. 
right? Because right. spiders are very small. Right. Okay. And particularly if one of, if my husband walks so we, in. And we would expect you to see the dragon if it was you, there. We wouldn't necessarily expect you to see the spider. That's exactly right. Unless if it's a spider right. dragon. <laughs> it, now, if my husband, all the more so, if my husband walks into the room and he says, uh, oh my goodness, there's a spider over there. And I say, I don't even look, you know, I say, no, there isn't. I didn't see it. When I came in. Okay, so what am I doing? Now I'm using the argument from silence against someone's testimony. Mm -hmm. And so when John testifies that Jesus, for example, said before Abraham was, I am. He's the only one who does it. And the skeptic scholar, Bart Ehrman, will go on and on and on. Why isn't that in the synoptics? If he really said it, why is it in the synoptics? So what's he doing? He's using the argument from silence against testimony. Mm -hmm. Because John records it. It's like, well, John records it. Right. You know, why didn't they record it? Well, John records it. You mean everything has to be recorded twice? <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. Well, well, where's that rule coming from? My goodness, if you required that, we'd have very little history left. It's just not true that everything has to be recorded twice. So your theory is that John, who wrote last, right, uh, was familiar, read maybe even the other Gospels, and he deliberately and consciously decided to add things that they didn't have. I think so. Yeah. And to not restate uh, the only the only miracle that is in all four Gospels is the feeding of the 5000. And he does have additional material about mm-hmm. it. But most of his his miracles, I believe all his other miracles are unique. Yeah. You know, and you can see him. You know, why didn't they tell about this? Oh, man, I got to be sure to sure to write that. You know, I want people to hear that story, you know. Yeah. So so then it would be. Given that, it would seem like it would be rather difficult to find undesigned uh, uh, coincidences with regard to John and the synoptics, right? And yet we have more of them in John (laughs) than in any other gospel. It's astonishing because what this shows is that you have to, you don't necessarily have to have them telling the same incident. Now, I gave an example of that a little bit ago when I gave the business about the cleansing of the temple, having an undesigned coincidence with the Beelzebub controversy, who would have thought, Mm. I mean, isn't that just beautiful? Mm. You know, that you can have these um, undesigned coincidences or for example, when uh, Jesus says on the night, so they, they all tell about the night of the last supper in some form, but they don't tell the same things about it. So um, Jesus says, I am among you is the one who serves. He says that in Luke, they have been fighting about who's going to be the greatest, which they did repeatedly actually. And Jesus begins chiding them that whoever is greatest among you should be the servant of all. And he says, who, who is greater? The one who reclines at the table. Cause that's how they ate. They reclined or the one who serves. Is it not the one uh, who reclines, but I am among you as the one who serves. Now, if you just read Luke, you'd say, well, um, he is reclining at the table. What does he mean? He's yeah. among them as the one who serves. And if you stop to think about it, it's kind of odd. Um, and in fact, Dr. Uh, Michael Lacona has suggested that Luke moved the argument, the dispute <laughs> over who will be the greatest to that evening. It didn't happen that evening. Um, but when we go over to John, we find that he washed their feet. So now we have an idea of what he means 
by I am among you as one who serves. And you can imagine, you know, John describes that foot washing, you know, blow by blow. I think John had quite a visual memory. Yeah. You know, he he rose and he removed his outer garment and he girded himself and he took water, you know, like blow by blow. And you can picture them all just kind of looking in silence. And then he sits down, you know, and he says, OK, boys, let's take this from the top, <laughs> you know, because he's saying something similar to what he said to them before. And then he says, you know, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, but it shall not be so among you. And then he concludes with, I am among you as the one who serves. So that's an example where they're telling two different things. Luke of the dispute, John of the foot washing. And yet, because John gives the new material, he's able to uh, fit together like puzzle pieces with yeah. the synoptics. And we can understand, obviously, the Luke account now way much more as opposed to being puzzled about what Luke is talking about. Right. Exactly. They explain, you know, they explain one another. We can even look at it as a kind of undesigned coincidence in the other direction. That The reason Jesus washed their feet that particular night was because they were fighting. You know, <laughs> yeah. in, like what gave rise to that? Why on that night? Well, because of this this bickering, you know, they wanted to do an object lesson. So they, they just really fit together extremely well. It's 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 a very cool thing. We find the way I put it is the more John tells us, the more he is confirmed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I, I do like, you know, he's he's writing later. And so you have people that aren't named in in the earlier ones uh, and they're named in, in John. It's like, well, mm-hmm. you know, maybe they've died or, you know, we, we have to uh, look at the history and say, you know, persecution is still happening uh, to this, this group of people. And just looking at the history within that first century, I think also helps explain that I don't think Bart Ehrman deals with all that much or, or he doesn't deal with it in an honest way. You know, I think uh, some scholars, skeptical scholars in particular, will say that adding names is a sign of embellishment. So they'll say, well, if there are more names in John, then that means John is, uh, you know, he's just trying to make things more interesting. And we do find that in the Gnostic or the like the later Gospels, um, the non-canonical Gospels, like the infancy uh, things that are made up, they'll name people like, for example, they'll invent a midwife when Jesus was born and give her a name and that kind of thing. So that kind of embellishment does occur. But actually, what's interesting is you do have this kind of scatter pattern, which I like. So it's, for example, in Mark that we hear that we hear about Simon of Cyrene who carried Jesus cross. And he's only mentioned in Mark. Um, or Bartimaeus, for example, a lot of scholars think Mark was first. He's only named in Mark. And then uh, Matthew tells us there were two blind men and he doesn't name either of them. So it's kind of cool the way you get these interweaving patterns. And I like to say that we need to recover the notion of casualness and the casualness of what is what's called salient or you know comes to mind of a given author and how valuable that is to historicity people tell you things just because they thought of them <laughs> you know how often do you notice that with your yeah. friends yeah. right they're not bringing something up for some heavy symbolic reason but just because they happen to think of it and i think we see that with names in the gospels a lot mm-hmm. great um, and and your book is is kind of split up here into two. One is uh, hidden in plain view in the Gospels, and then the other one is hidden in plain view in Acts and the Pauline Epistles. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, obviously, uh, we, we understand the, the the importance and the differences. Um, what 
what do we see in Acts and the epistles? Uh, you know, mm-hmm. it, uh, there, there's uh, always talks, uh, and there, there has been for uh, uh, at least two thousand years of which letters are Paul's. Does mm-hmm. does uh, hidden um, uh, undesigned con- uh, uh, coincidences? Does that uh, help us with establishing maybe uh, what uh, what some scholars think is uh, non Pauline that they are, and and how does this also um, affect our understanding in Acts? Right. Um- Yes, as a matter of fact, and there's a book I want to recommend. It's free because it's uh, not, you know, it's very old, so it's not incorporated anymore. And it's called the Horai Paulini, and that's H-O-R-A-E, and then Paul, P-A-U-L-I-N-A-E. And it is by William Paley. He is the man who invented the phrase undesigned coincidences. And that book does a lot with Pauline authorship and uses undesigned coincidences to establish Pauline authorship. Um, Now, what I just chose to do in Hidden in Plain View was to take them and use them even more to establish the historicity of Acts. That's just what I chose to do. Um, for length and organization purposes, I think people who read it can see how they're also relevant to Pauline authorship, but there are more. I mean, literally in terms of numbers of them, there are more that I didn't include that help to establish Pauline authorship. So get hold of the Horai Pauline uh, if you're interested in even more. Now, as Maybe far as part Acts, two of this book? Part two of this book for Acts, for sure. <laughs> and then Horai Pauline for Pauline authorship. For sure. And then you'll get in the whole fascinating thing of the chronology of Paul's ministry, which is just a fascinating question uh, in and of itself. And there's a huge literature on it, but I I enjoy looking into that. Um, How do they establish acts? Well, by establishing that its author knew of Paul's movements, his associates, his travel, Um, and the events surrounding his life, but establishing that in this extremely subtle way. So here's one of my my favorites in Acts that I'll just give as an example. In Acts 18, uh, Paul has come to Corinth and he makes tents part of the week. And then he, um, it says on the Sabbath, he was, you know, in the synagogue telling that Jesus was the Christ. Um, But it says when, Uh, Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia. He became, and then it's this very odd phrase. I don't even remember how it goes in the Greek, but different translations translate it differently. The New American Standard translates it completely devoted to the word. Mm. Okay. Um, Completely devoted to the word, testifying that Jesus was the Christ. Well, Paul, my goodness, he was always completely (laughs) devoted to the word. And this is Paul we're talking about, very zealous person. What is that about? It's really weird. And what was it about their coming? You know, is that just a chance connection that the author is making? Or was there something about their coming that caused him to be completely devoted? When you go over to 2 Corinthians, Paul is defending himself that he never has taken money from the church at Corinth. He's writing to the church at Corinth. And he says, I never took any money. I didn't burden you. He said, I robbed other churches to minister to you. Paul's always a little dramatic. You know, he didn't really (laughs) rob other churches, but that's how he likes to put it. And he says, and when I was with you and was in need, the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. Now we can put these together that they may have brought money a donation from Macedonia 
And notice he doesn't even name them in the epistle, right? But Acts names them as Timothy and Silas. He's been, because he's been sending Timothy and Silas back up and down <laughs> north and south through Greece. It was hard being they, Paul's they friend. They were young. Man, he would be like, go back. Now come back. Come after me as quick as you can. Well, go back and talk to the church of Thessalonica, you know. Um, so anyway, so they come to him and if we conjecture that they brought money, then he would not have had to make tents as much because right, right. it's just mentioned his making tents. He could do more preaching. So that's one of my favorites. And that's how the Acts ones t- seem to go. They're very subtle like that. And right. I, I like that. I think that's even in some ways stronger. So the devotion there then is that he could devote all of his time or the majority of his time as opposed right. to yeah, making tents. Yeah. To, to, to the Agreed. ministry. Yeah. Yeah, he had the thermometer and he kept drawing lines. All right. Yeah, exactly. Oh, he, yeah, his thermometer was for that uh, thing he took up, that collection he took up for the people in Jerusalem. You'll remember he mentions mm-hmm. that over and over again in the epistles. One of the remarkable things is that Acts never mentions that collection. Mm-hmm. And yet Acts describes all the places that he went where he was taking up the collection. So you can follow his journey in Acts, okay? And it's the same journey that you can follow in the epistles where he's taking up the collection. But Acts doesn't mention the collection, but it mentions all of the, the locations. Now, that's I find that extremely cool. At this point, I can place in the book of Acts, uh, let's see, which books? 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Romans, uh, first and second Thessalonians, I would say Galatians, but that, of course, is a huge controversy as to where you place Galatians, as you probably know. But I would say I, I think I know where he wrote Galatians. But the others I can place sometimes to the very verse in Acts, but Acts never mentions him writing the epistles. But I can do that by these undesigned coincidences, by the connections between the epistles and Acts. I, I really like how uh, I, I think there's a line in this book that says uh um, that uh, Luke gives us just so many details that it's just almost overbearing. But yet, Scott, we we would almost want more looking at it today. But if you were reading mm-hmm. back then, it's like, right, Luke, we got it, we got it. What's what? Why are you writing this two thousand years later? And, and we're we're like, uh, why isn't Luke mentioning this or this or this? Tell us more. <laughs> Even some really weird uh, uh, details. One that I call an unexplained allusion, and that's a new kind of uh, evidence that I talk about in the Mirror of the Mask. Positive evidence. He says Paul cut his hair at uh, Sancria because he had a vow. Now that's right. like right near Corinth. We don't exactly know. I mean, when you look into Nazarite vows, you're actually supposed to cut your hair in Jerusalem. So why is he cutting his hair in Greece? Because he has a vow. What's this about? Luke does not try to explain it. In fact, Luke was probably a Gentile. You can picture Luke. So Paul cut his hair in Greece because he had some kind of a vow. You know, and he writes it down because he knows it happened, but he doesn't understand it. So he doesn't try to explain it, but he's just writing it down because it's true. Right. And there's all those kinds of things. I, and this this is a little bit off topic, but um, I, I've I've heard the explanation before that Luke and Acts are kind of Paul's court documents uh, that that are are to be brought before uh, Caesar for his trial. Would 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 you say that may hold as a, a legitimate theory? I wouldn't think Luke would be as relevant to that. 
um, acts would seem to be relevant, showing his peaceful intention or defending him and so forth. Um, I, I do think that acts was written at a time when it potentially could have been used in that way. On the other hand, I pictured Paul is a very independent sort of person who would have probably wanted to stand up and give his defense orally rather than saying, hey, you know, bring these documents uh, kind of thing. So that would be just a conjecture. Um, but they, they certainly are written by the same person that I would definitely say. And it is a close companion of Paul. Just uh, summarize uh, a little bit for for um, hidden in plain view. Um, sure. Are, are there are there main groupings or, or you know, kind of how. um uh, 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 th there are the errors in the Bible. You can kind of say, oh, this is a time and place one. This one is, you know, uh, a narrative. This one is uh, theology based. Um, are, are there like main groupings that, that, uh, that, that people can kind of look at and see um, uh, what, what these yeah. design uh, coincidences are? There are, and you, you can choose your groupings. Now, as you can see from my uh, table of contents in Hidden in Plain View, I organize them by books. Right. So one of the ways that I organize them is I say, what explains what the synoptics explain John. John explains the synoptics. The synoptics explain each other. And then I have a miscellaneous, you know, others in the Gospels, you know, <laughs> that I couldn't bear to leave out, you know. And then I have uh, Acts and Paul's undisputed epistles and Acts and Paul's other epistles. I wanted to be really clear. I was not conceding that Paul didn't write those. I actually think. Paul wrote all of the epistles attributed to him uh, in, in the Bible, but I just thought that my, reader, my readers might be interested in that organization, so I chose to organize it that way. So there I organized it by books. You can also organize them by um, what they confirm. So, for example, they might confirm a single event. They might confirm details of events, or they might confirm a fact that stands behind uh, a group of events. So, for example, the one I just gave about the brethren coming from Macedonia. What's the fact that stands behind? Well, hypothetically, and I think I think it is true that they brought in money. So we conjecture that fact. Neither of the documents states specifically that, you know, when Timothy and Silas came, they brought Paul money. And that is why he stopped uh, making tents and had more time, et cetera. We conjecture that. So we think of that as a fact that stands behind. So we can categorize them by what they confirm or by, or by books or by what explains what. And then we can mix and match these categories. Very neat. Very neat. Yeah. I, I, I really enjoyed reading this book. Like I said, I, I'm almost viewed it as a, 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 a positive approach to those, uh, those tensions within, within the, uh, within the New Testament. And so, well, one of, yeah, one of the things I tried to say there was, you know, in this book, I'm not going to talk about alleged contradictions. I do talk about those in the mirror of the mask. Mm -hmm. But I said, what I want to do is have us not miss the forest for the trees. Before we look at alleged contradictions, let's look at some of the positive evidence yeah. for the reliability of the Gospels. And then when you get that as your background, then I think you should be more open to harmonizing the alleged contradictions because you can say these look like reliable uh, witnesses. Mm -hmm. And then when you have reliable witnesses, Witnesses, it's only responsible to try to harmonize what they say. Yeah. And um, I, I would refer people back to our interview with Jay Warren Wallace, who also talks about this. Uh, th th uh, this book is, is, uh, leads us into your next book in that 
um, uh, these undesigned uh, coincidences help us to establish uh, the New Testament as a historical narrative or, or, or lend to the fact. Um, and, and then in your book, uh, The Mirror and the Mask, Liberating the Gospels from Literary Devices, uh, this book is, is, uh, leads us into your next book in that um, uh, these undesigned uh, coincidences help us to establish uh, the New Testament as a historical narrative or, or, or lend to the fact. Um, and, and then in your book, uh, The Mirror and the Mask, Liberating the Gospels from Literary Devices, um, can you explain the difference uh, for for me, not for Tony, but for me, of uh, literary devices and historical narratives? Sure. So in in the book, I talk about fictionalizing literary devices. You could also call them fact changing literary devices, if you prefer. They are supposed conventions of the time that are alleged to have caused the gospel authors to think it was okay to change or invent the facts. So. Uh, this would, but this would be invisible. So it would appear historical. You would read it. It would look like Jesus really cleansed the temple early in his ministry. That just use that as an example because I mentioned it earlier. Okay, like um, <laughs> you know, it's just to to kind of keep an example I already brought up. But there are a lot more of these that they will mm-hmm. allege, um, and so then the, even the original readers would not have been able to tell. And that's important to know that in these uh, fact-changing devices, it would be sort of like if we went to a movie, okay, based on true events. The example I give, I'm probably dating myself in the book, is Chariots of Fire because it's one of my favorite movies. (laughs) You probably have your own favorite biopic uh, or, you know, movie based on true events. You go and it's a very realistic movie, right? It looks like it's all really happening. But you know, walking in that because it's a movie, they probably change some stuff. And then if you want to find out what they changed, you have to go look it up somewhere else. You know, maybe you look it up on Wikipedia or you look it up on some other um, analysis website or something that's going to show that's going to say, well, this part really happened, but this really didn't happen or this isn't when this guy got married or whatever. Right. And their whole websites devoted to this. Okay, that's what these were supposedly like. The problem is there were no websites that you could go look it up (laughs) to check. Okay, so the idea, the claim is that the readers were just like, yeah, we know to take these details with a grain of salt because they could be changed, even though we can't tell which ones. Okay, they'd be guessing just like we're guessing. That's the what I call literary device view of the Gospels, that they are partially altered. They're partially historical, but partially altered. Now, that's obviously very different from my view uh, and I would say very different from the view that is supported by the evidence, including undesigned coincidences, that when you have undesigned coincidences, you have these differences. If you just think they felt like it was fine to change the facts, then you would presumably say, uh, well, maybe one of them just changed that. Right. right. Because to make it more interesting or follow these conventions or whatever, you wouldn't even look for how it might explain something in in another book. You wouldn't even ask a question, you know, like, well, why this or why that? You know, you certainly wouldn't if you thought, for example, that John moved the temple cleansing, uh, you certainly wouldn't think that the temple cleansing explained the hostility of the Jerusalem rulers. 
because it didn't happen, right? I mean, yeah. it didn't happen at that time. It didn't happen till late on that theory. It didn't happen till late in Jesus' ministry. So it can't explain their early hostility. So these are obviously very different views. Um, and so what I do in the mirror of the mask is that I say, you know, which of these, I call my model the reportage model, just kind of a common sense model. And I say, which of these is better supported by the evidence? You know, I'm not going in there and saying, oh, let's all get, you know, worried and upset and let's reject these literary devices because they upset us, you know, because emotionally we can't handle it or something like that. I say, well, let's look at the arguments, you know, let's look at the evidence. And I conclude that the reportage model is um, is better supported. So so when I'm reading this and and, and um, I, I, I'm understanding what's being said, is, is it, would I be inaccurate to say that John is purposefully lying to make a, a theological point in a lot of these? I mean, John or, or in terms or of literary devices, yeah, right? for the yeah. literary devices yeah. uh, um, uh, argumentation, like move, John or whoever yeah, moving yeah, the, the temple cleansing, moved it or changed it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a contentious question. Um, <laughs> those I am critiquing will become extremely offended if I say yes to you. Um, so I'm not going to say yes to you. Here's the idea. You do a good job in not saying yes in the book too. Cause I'm like, I'm, <laughs> right. I'm looking okay, for the word so, lie. So, so here's the idea. Suppose it really were like a movie based on true events. Like, I don't think that the people who wrote the screenplay for chariots of fire were liars. Why? Because we all understand that it's just a movie, right? Right, right? So the idea is that if the readers all just understood that it's just a bios, that's what they call it, you know, Greco-Roman mm-hmm. bios, then they're going to go, you know, if they're sitting in church, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying anyone's actually said this, but you're sitting in church listening to it being read because they read, they read the Gospels right. aloud in church. Not everybody could read. And being read in church was a sign of canonicity or a very early indicator of what we now call canonicity. So they're reading them in church. And the little girl says, Mommy, did Jesus really throw out the dove sellers, you know, right there at the beginning before everything? And she says, we don't know, honey, because it's just a bios and they can change (laughs) things, right? Like you would. With a movie, you take your kid to a movie and the kid says, did it really happen that way? And you say, well, maybe, maybe not. We'll go home and look it up on Google, honey. Right. Okay. (laughs) Except they don't have any Google to look it up on. So a lot of it would have to just be, well, we're not sure, but they're all okay with that. And in that case, you're going to say, it's not a lie. Right. Because just like a movie isn't a lie. But this is a piece of fiction in order to help uh, dramatize or whatever what's going on. Exactly. It's like fiction or partial fiction, um, but not necessarily a lie. But this is a very heavy thesis. And this is something I emphasize in the mirror or the mask. What of a, a, a burden of proof, I call it. And as a philosopher of knowledge, I'm interested in the question of burden of proof. You're taking on a very heavy burden of proof when you're making that claim about what the original audience would have understood so that they would literally be there. And they're sort of taking all of this with a grain of salt. That's why they're not deceived. Right. Um, That's a pretty heavy burden of proof. Nowadays, (laughs) you'd have no trouble proving the existence of those movies. Right. Right. I mean, all you have to do is go look up the websites. What was changed in this movie, right? And it's like everybody knows that stuff was changed. And the, the director himself may state, I changed that. You know, we actually have interviews and stuff. We could easily satisfy that burden of proof. 
but they don't have that kind of evidence for such a heavy thesis about this genre. So that's number one. And the other thing that I point out is that this would greatly undermine reliability. If you go and you're taking a history doctorate and you want to write about the history of the 1924 Olympics, I will tell you what you do not cite as an original source. Chariots <laughs> of fire. fire right? <laughs> okay, right? <laughs> You're not gonna, your professor's not going to accept that in your dissertation on the 1924 Olympics. But the music's really good. <laughs> right, exactly. Okay. Okay. But the gospels supposedly are our primary sources, right? So the funny thing is, there's kind of dilemma here. The same move that excuses the gospel authors, or they say excuses them, so they're not lying, undermines reliability. Think about it. In the very act of saying, it's all okay, everybody just understood they could change a lot of stuff. What are we saying? They didn't rely on them. They didn't rely on them, at least not for anything other than the big, big picture. And it's got to be a pretty big picture. (laughs) You can have whole incidents that never happened, Mm -hmm. you know, like the early temple cleansing and so forth. So it's funny because they can't have it both ways. They can't simultaneously say these are really reliable historically, and then at the same time say they're in a genre to where it wasn't lying because it was just understood that they could change all this stuff. You know, you can't have both of those. So let me just, a couple of things uh, come to mind with that. Uh, The first one is kind of a a literary philosophical question. You know, how do you, Mm -hmm. how do you determine a literary device from what is true? I mean, you know, how, how would they determine that, you know? And then it's secondly, interesting uh, question. <laughs> yeah. And then secondly, um, uh, the state of the the, uh, the the nature of what's going on, I guess, in in the uh, you know in the field, uh, mm-hmm. where is it? Where is it headed? You know, do you find a lot of pushback? Where's you know where where are the scholars at these days? Right, right. So, how would they say that they can determine it? from what is true. It's an excellent question. And it's especially an excellent question when you insist that this genre allowed for things to be changed. Uh, Dr. Lacona uses the phrase part and parcel, that these were part and parcel of the genre. If something is part and parcel of the genre, then quite frankly, we would expect them to be changed fairly widely. I mean, if I go in there and I say it's part and parcel of the genre of a biopic, to change the facts. You're not going to expect there to just be one or two. You'd expect there to be quite a few. In fact, you'd expect there to be ones that you never even guessed, that you never even suspected, right? Were changed because they're doing it in this very realistic way. So um, generally their method that I find, uh, one big method is what I call discrepancy hunting. Mm. Um, And they'll do this with secular documents as well, that you go and you find an apparent discrepancy And that's where you zero in and you say, aha, maybe this is where there's a there's been a change. Now, that's not going to turn up all of them, you know. Um, And the other thing is that they're very big on what they call multiple attestation. So if something is said in multiple gospels, like we were talking about earlier, does everything have to be said twice? Well, (laughs) if you're a literary device theorist, it sure helps. You know, if something is said twice, because then you're like. Okay, good. I'm going to take it that that's that's real, you know, but it might be at a fairly high level. So, for example, that Jesus called himself the son of man is multiply attested because we find him calling himself the son of man in a lot of different gospels. But whether the specific incident where he called himself the son of man 
happened? That might be more of a question if it's only in one gospel, because then that specific thing is only singly attested. So we have to get, you know, we're going to end up defending things at a much higher level of generality is what I would say. Um, and that's, that's what they tend to do to try to distinguish fact from uh, what I call fiction. They don't like the word fiction for some reason, but <laughs> I mean, it, you know, honestly, fiction isn't necessarily an insult. I love fiction. My doctorate is in literature. Yeah. I love fiction. I'm not saying fiction is immoral, but I don't think the gospels are fiction. And frankly, I don't think the audience did think that way. Right. So I think the audience would have been misled. And now we have a problem. Now we do have a problem with with um, honesty and dishonesty and so forth. Now, as far as where's, you know, where's the field going? Um, Non-Christian scholars would still consider most of these literary Christian literary device theorists to be much more conservative than the non-Christian scholars are. So it's like Bart Ehrman, you know, if I can organize it, you know, in a scale, you know, Bart Ehrman is to the left of Michael Lacona you know, et cetera, is to the left of Norman Geisler, you know, so we can, you know, lay this out. So it's not as though, you know, Bart Ehrman is just going to say, my buddy, you know, we agree about everything now, obviously, because they believe that Jesus, you know, really rose from the dead and they believe in miracles and this kind of thing. And Bart Ehrman doesn't, obviously, he's not a Christian, but there is actually quite a lot of um, a surprising amount of agreement um, because the the mainstream scholars like Dr. Ehrman will argue that these are irreconcilable contradictions in these cases. For example, uh, an irreconcilable contradiction about when Jesus cleansed the temple, for example, or um, whether Jesus really said before Abraham was, I am. Ehrman will argue against that. Um, Dr. Craig Evans has said regarding several of Jesus, I am sayings that um, if you followed Jesus around with a video camera, you would not find him saying that you would, you would not actually find him saying that. And um, so it was interesting. That was in 2012 in a debate. Um, Ehrman said, so uh, you're not going to use the gospel of John as a source for Jesus life because you think it's metaphorical. And Evans said, fair enough. So they were <laughs> wow. agreeing on that. That the Gospel of John is not a a primary historical source. So what Evan said was that the synoptics were our primary historical sources Mm -hmm. for the life of Jesus, but not John, because it's quote unquote metaphorical was Ehrman's word. And then Evan said, fair enough. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think what we are also finding is that in the evangelical world, more and more people are agreeing with this. That's where I see the movement taking place. Uh, especially among apologetics, there's a whole group of um, YouTube apologists who are very friendly to to these views. Um, they're very, very intrigued by them. I'm not sure they even always understand what the views are, frankly, mm-hmm. because um, sometimes these are not spoken of in clear terms. And that's part of what the resistance has been to my work is that I'm, I'm almost putting things too bluntly. I'm supposed to use euphemisms and so (laughs) forth, but um, I I definitely see more and more young, especially uh, evangelicals, young male, as it happens, evangelical apologists who are adopting these views, Um, following, following Dr. Lacona, Dr. Evans, and, uh, and to some extent, although he doesn't say as much about it, uh, Craig Keener as well. Um, And, and actually, 
there are also sort of the second order group of people who have endorsed the endorsed the work, though they themselves don't do a lot of it. So, for example, Dr. William Lane Craig has not done a lot of um, bringing up these um, literary devices, though he does believe John moved the temple cleansing. Since that's been a thread in this talk, I'll just say he does <laughs> he does think that. And he's very clear that he thinks that. Um, but they will endorse Dr. Lacona's work very wholeheartedly. Like mm. he's done us such a service by showing us that there were these compositional devices. You should listen to him. So when Marty Sampson uh, deconverted, you guys probably, do you guys remember that last fall? Marty Sampson was a worship leader. If you Google it. He was a worship leader at a big mega church, and he had a kind of a high profile deconversion experience. It's kind of what you might call a Twitter deconversion, you know, where he was out there. I've ceased. I'm not a Christian anymore, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and a lot of people were really upset because people had admired him. So uh, Dr. Craig did a podcast about Dr. Wheelman Craig did a podcast about uh, Marty Sampson's deconversion. And Sampson talked about contradictions in the Gospels as a reason for his deconversion. He even said, nobody's talking about it, which is false. I mean, <laughs> lots of people are talking about it. It's like, what? You know, but uh, Dr. Craig said, well, most of, now was the word he used, most, the contradictions here, the alleged contradictions in the gospels can be explained by the compositional devices that Michael Lacona has written about. Boy, that sure makes your apologetic uh, uh, job a whole lot easier if you can just, you know, brush away all of that kind of stuff. Now you don't have to explain that stuff, right? It's interesting, (laughs) and especially because they won't call it an error either, even though the the information is not true. You know, I mean, the the information that Jesus uh, say that the disciples here, I'll pick a different one. I won't keep using the temple cleansing so we don't get bored, <laughs> but that the disciples really had a fight on the night of Jesus um, betrayal, the night of the last supper um, to say that they really had a fight is incorrect. So if Luke says they really had a fight that night, that's false information, but we're not going to label it an error. We're not going to label it a contradiction. We're going to label it a literary device. I call this word magic. This is just (laughs) word magic. It doesn't explain anything. It doesn't remove anything. If you were a new deconvert, imagine being a new deconvert. You've listened to Bart Ehrman. You've, you know, adopted the idea that these were contradictions. And then somebody says, oh, no, you need to understand. These were compositional devices. Can you really imagine someone reconverting? I mean, how probable, I'm not saying it's impossible. Anything's possible with God, but it seems to me improbable that someone would reconvert to Christianity because they've been given this new label because essentially they still are contradictions. You're still saying they contradict one another. You're just saying, well, he did it on purpose. It's (laughs) like, you know, if I trip or something and I say, well, that was me being funny. You know, I did it on purpose. Well, Okay, but you still spilled the milk. Okay, Okay? milk is still on the floor. You did it to be funny, but the milk is still on the floor. So similarly, if you say John did it on purpose, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they did it on purpose, the information's still inaccurate. So I really don't think this is going to address um, deconverts or concerns, really. I I don't think this is going to cause them to come back. So the, the... to answer your question, there is a movement in this direction. That's And that is why I felt that I needed to write The Mirror of the Mask. Originally, it was blog posts. I wrote scholarly blog posts. 
those received a huge amount of negative press, just like, why are you doing this? This is terrible, et cetera. And besides, it's just on the internet. So that was said a lot. It's just on the internet, just on the internet. Well, a lot of things are on the internet. I mean, they, you know, you can put some really good content on the internet. Um, But I finally, I went to my publisher who had published Hidden in Plain View. And I said, look, I think it's almost unfair to you. I'm not sure if I make this a book, how well it's going to sell. It's controversial. People are angry about it. Um, and I've already published some of it on the internet, <laughs> but I'm getting all this pushback that I'm doing it on the internet. How would you feel about publishing it in a book form? And he said, yeah, we're doing a print on demand model. So that removes a certain amount of our um, financial risk because you're not printing 2000 copies and having them sit somewhere in a warehouse, you know, and then if they don't sell, you're just out that money and you've just got to rent the warehouse, you know, we're doing a more of a print on demand model being printed in small batches and so forth. Um, we can, we can have Amazon process them for it for us and so forth. He said, yes, you know, let's do it. And it's because he encouraged me that I actually put it in a book form and it's not, it's not just what was already on the internet, but I was like, yeah, let's put it in a book form because this is important because people are coming to believe this. Yeah. I, I really felt when, when reading uh, kind of what Tony was saying, r- removing um, uh, the, the dealing with the tensions. It, it, it seems like that's an easier way. I felt like I was kind of reading the Jesus seminars again. Mm. And, and, and it felt like uh, some of the, the quotes that you would make, I'm like, this is something that like John Shelby Spong would, would be comfortable <laughs> with, with saying. And, 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 and right. I, you know, I, I, I really do take your point of, of writing fiction isn't lying. Um, but at the same time, it seems odd that you would still want to be, uh, you know, c- considering uh, what type of Christian you are and, and, and holding to, you know, if, if, if you're a Christian that believes in salvation by, by, by Christ, it seems like it's a hard thing to, to put into, um, into your mind that, oh, well, we can believe the resurrection. And kind of like what Peter Enns does. He says, mm-hmm. you know, anything in the Gospels it, uh, that that leads towards salvation is true. Everything else is, eh, you know, whatever. Negotiable. <laughs> well, and especially yeah. since we're told to follow Jesus. And I talk about this at the beginning of the Mirror of the Mask, right? Um, you know, if this gets very practical. Um, suppose you want to comfort somebody who's had someone who's just died. And you say, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And they say, "Um, I read that the gospel authors sometimes embellish Jesus' words. So I'm not (laughs) sure Jesus really said that. Can you use that to comfort somebody as pastoral practice by saying that Jesus said it? This is something that my my good friend Tom Gilson has written about quite a lot uh, since Mirror of the Mass came out. This would alter pastoral practice. This would alter teaching and preaching. You get up on a Sunday morning Mm -hmm. and you say, you know, here's this incident in the Gospels. It happened. It happened like this. Yes. okay. they were not speaking English. We're not stupid. We know that. Okay, but but at least recognizably, if you had known the relevant languages, you could have recognized what they were saying. Um, And so, for example, Jesus breathed on his disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, that incident is questioned whether that incident even happened is questioned by some evangelicals. Um, So are you going to feel confident to preach that way? And so Thomas said, you know, don't try to don't try to tell us this doesn't matter. 
This actually does matter. And shouldn't we, if this is true, shouldn't we be out there educating all the pastors? Hey, pastors, don't get up on a Sunday morning and say that this happened. Say that Jesus did this because it didn't really happen that way. So so there are real practical consequences with regard to these issues. Mm -hmm. They really, they really are. You guys and I both know that pastors care about what really happened. And I think they're right to care about what really happened. Mm-hmm. That's why you'll get a pastor and will get off in a little rant. You know, the uh, <laughs> let's see, the the wise men didn't come to the manger. Right. I mean, you, I'm sure you guys have heard <laughs> right, the right. sermons. Right. Or no, Mary Magdalene was not a prostitute, you know, or whatever. Right. That, that if there's some tradition that's grown up, that's not historically accurate, the particularly Protestant pastor, though I imagine a a Catholic or liturgical pastor as well could have this concern, wants to pair that away, right? He wants to get us back to what historically really happened. And therefore, they're going to want to know if this is true or not. And I don't think we should patronize them. I don't think we should say, oh, don't don't bother your heads about that. Don't worry about that. I think we should talk to them honestly. And that's why I think they should Read, read my work because it's good news because uh, it really did happen. You know? I, I felt too, also with, with reading this, uh, it, it reminded me of what Origen did with the Old Testament. If, mm-hmm. if you can allegorize, allegorize everything or anything in the Old Testament, you, you can make it say whatever you want. And so by, by having these kind of literary devices, at, at what point do you stop? I mean, uh, you know, you, of course you go along with scholarship and say, oh, you know, uh, uh, Jesus walking, Fine. Jesus walking on water, eh, you know, eh, maybe not. And so you you allegorize uh, the New Testament. I, f- I feel like this is a, an attempt of, of of the new origin to to kind of allegorize the New Testament. There is a lot of subjectivity to it. Um, and there's a phrase that I, I really admired D.A. Carson as a scholar. He'll use the phrase without objective control. And I think that's what you're getting at, that this is without objective control. Yeah. Very often you'll find that just the fact that somebody could think of a theory is enough to give that theory credit. So um, I'll give you an example. There's the theory that John changed the time when Pilate condemned Jesus um, because there's an apparent contradiction between John and Mark about what time of day it was. I tend to go for a scribal error theory on that one because the they used these little, um, what would I call them? It's It's like a shorthand. Okay, for a number and the number six and the number three were very similar and that it might have just been a very early scribal error to confuse the the six and the three. But anyway, um, the more the more scholarly literary theory is that John changed it for a symbolic reason. So uh, one symbolic reason is supposed to be so that Jesus would die at the same time that the lambs were being killed in the temple. Well, I mean. John doesn't mention when the lambs were being killed in the temple. He doesn't even bring up lambs anywhere there. And besides, when you have hundreds of lambs, you're not killing them at any one time (laughs) in the temple. It takes a while to kill all those lambs, right? You know, so, I mean, it's just not plausible. And John's uh, Gentile readers, and, and he's probably writing after the fall of Jerusalem, maybe even some of his younger Jewish readers wouldn't even know what the practice was as far as when they killed the lambs in the temple. So this is a very implausible theory. So you go to uh, Dr. Craig Keener's commentary on the Gospel of John, and to his credit, he brings up some of these arguments against that theory about the lambs being killed in the temple. But then he says, but um, 
readers of John will recognize that it was at the sixth hour when Jesus was weary when he sat down at the well in John chapter four. So it's like we have to have some symbolic theory. Like we realize that this business about the lambs being killed, that's not going to fly. So now we bring up some different thing about it was to to recall the, the time when Jesus was weary. And it's like, you know, why not just say that there's something we don't know, maybe a scribal error, maybe a rounding difference between John and Mark or whatever, that actually explains why they appear to differ here. Instead of trying to make, it's like we could just make up some theological motive that the author might have had. We're trying to read the author's mind. uh, And that is without objective control. Going into kind of uh, uh, our general look at what apologetics um, does when, when it comes to this, uh, how does how does studying uh, the, the the topic that you um, put forth here? How does that help us in our apologetic model? Um, yeah, uh, excellent, excellent question. So, I advocate something I call the maximal data approach to uh, supporting the resurrection and Christianity. And this is in contrast to the minimal minimal facts approach, minimal approach. I advocate the maximal approach. <laughs> now that doesn't have to mean that you tell everybody everything that you know, and you make them sit there for five hours and listen to you talk. In fact, I can state a maximal data style argument in, you know, two minutes. There's an elevator version, you know, either the God, either the disciples were deceivers, they were mistaken, or they were telling the truth. They were not deceivers because they were risking death. They were not mistaken. And this is the important part because of the details of what they claimed. They claimed they, they, they talked to Jesus, you know, face to face and they met him in groups and they, they could touch him and all that. Not the kind of thing you can be mistaken about. You know, whether you spent spring break, you spent a lot of time with your best friend, you know, your best friend. So they were not mistaken. Therefore, they were telling the truth. There's my elevator version of a maximal data case. But you'll notice what I did. I made use of the details of the gospel resurrection accounts, right? That he could eat, that he could be touched, that they met him in a group all together on on numerous occasions. They had big conversations with him, et cetera, right? And if um, my person I was talking to tried to argue that it could have just been a hallucination or maybe one person had a hallucination and convinced the others, I'm going to say, you know, that's really lame because it just doesn't explain these accounts. Look how detailed these accounts are. No, I think you're going to have to say they were lying, but that's not going to fly either, et cetera. Right. Because of the risks that they took and so forth. So why that's why we need those details just to say, well, a majority of scholars acknowledge that, that, that Jesus, the disciples had appearance experiences. Mm-hmm. Okay, what's an appearance experience? As a matter of fact, this is hot. This is hot off the press. I'm going to give you something new. Never been said in public yet. I had an exchange with Bart Ehrman on uh, his blog recently. Um, I had bought a year's subscription to his blog for research purposes. And I went back to an old post that was on there. I think it was from 2012. And I put a question in the comments and he answered it. So, uh, and then I asked a follow-up, he answered that. And then I I stopped. Um, So if you subscribe to Bart Ehrman's blog, you can read this. So I said to him, I have heard it said that you acknowledge the appearances to the, the disciples. 
that that, is, that Jesus, they had appearance experiences. But it doesn't look to me like you do acknowledge that there was a, an appearance to a group, you know, that you grant that. And so I'm wondering if, if, if you grant the appearances to groups or not. And if you do, what do you think they were like? Okay, let's be specific. What specifically do you think they were like? Okay, so I'm not going to try to give you verbatim what he said, but um, the short version was he said, well, I don't grant the appearances. Maybe I should say, excuse me, group appearances. He thinks he thinks that Peter had some kind of experience. Mary Mary Magdalene had some kind of individual experience. He said, I don't grant group experiences. Maybe there were, maybe there weren't. Um, There could have been. But then he said, I think they were like some Marian, uh, Marian apparitions. And so then in the follow up, I said, but I mean, I don't think they usually have meals with the Virgin Mary <laughs> in groups when they have Marian apparitions. Right. Or long conversations. If they did have group experiences, do you think that it included those kinds of things? Because I know you think those are embellishments in the Gospels. I know you don't think. That's what the witnesses really said, right? So he said, usually in the Marian apparitions, the original group experience is seeing at a distance. Mm. And then they're embellished later. Mm. Now that's really important because when you're trying to um, get a lot of scholars to agree with something, oh, wow, even Bart Ehrman agrees with this. Oh, even this scholar agrees. Even Gerd Ludeman agrees with this. Even Wolfhard Pannenberg, you know, these very liberal scholars, they all agree (laughs) that there was an appearance experience. And all you get is seeing at a distance, right? How strong of an argument is that (laughs) for for the resurrection? I don't think that's a very strong argument. Oh, over there, (laughs) that looked like Jesus. You know, I'm sorry, but that's not going to give you, would you believe that some dude was risen from the dead? No wonder people compare it to Elvis sightings, right? Because that's what an Elvis sighting is like, right? A supposed Elvis sighting. So when we're watering down what we're doing to get high numbers, like a percentage of agreement, then we're not going to have a strong of an argument. That's just, it's like a, it's like an inverse relation. It's an inverse function. Okay. The higher the number of, of liberal scholars you get on board with it, the weaker an argument it is for the resurrection. Okay. So that's why we need to argue that the gospels are not embellished like that, that they're reliable early accounts so that in the resurrection accounts, we can say, no, at a minimum, this is really what the disciples told, say, Luke, for example. This is what happened to us. We ate with him, right? Uh, Mark represents what Peter told Mark, right? John represents what John actually said. That's what he said happened to them. And they met him and they talked to him and he breathed on them and he had these conversations and he ate fish with them and so forth. So that these represent what the disciples themselves claimed that's really foundational to a very strong argument. So this is how I make a practical application of um, arguing for the reportage model, um, that it really is very important for arguing for Christianity. And so ultimately what it comes down to is how do we take the gospels? Do we see it as an accurate reflection of what it's saying or is it being obscured by a mask, if you will, and, exactly. and seeing, seeing if, if there, there's uh, uh, kind of this designed uh, attempt to, um, uh, to massage to the facts, to, to, right. to construct a narrative rather than let the narrative right. play out. 
Correct. Yes. The author's own agenda, the author's own version, which mm-hmm. is different from the truth. That's correct. Great. Um, so uh, um, we appreciate your time here. Uh, yeah. What 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 is what's what's next book? Uh, I know what it is, but because I follow yeah. follow you on, on and you've the kind of alluded to it a couple times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's going to be I, called. I follow you on the, on the McGroupies, and when you said there's another book, and as as I was ordering this one, I'm like. I, I need to pick up that one too because I really enjoyed the writing and, and um, it's going to be a while YouTube. because we we have to get it proofread. I've just finished drafting it. It's called The Eye of the Beholder. I don't even know if it's going to have a subtitle. I don't know. Maybe Whoa. the Gospel of John is reported. You have, to have a subtitle these days, right? <laughs> you always got to have a subtitle. But I know the main title is The Eye of the Beholder. And I've commissioned a great painting that we're going to use for the, the cover art. You can wait for that. It's by a, a, a Catholic artist named Timothy Jones. A beautiful painting. And um, so it's about just about the Gospel of John. Because as we've discussed, the Gospel of John does come in for a lot of extra questioning uh, of its historicity. It's always treated as different. And it'll, it'll be interesting. You'll even see scholars talk about the Gospels and they'll say seemingly positive things. And then they'll say, and then there's John. And it's like, well, last I checked, John was one of the Gospels. Oh, you didn't mean those generalizations, those positive sounding generalizations to apply to John. Gotcha. You know, so I realized when I wrote The Mirror of the Mask, there was so much more that I would need to do to give a robust defense. There is some overlap. There is some overlap between them. Um, Also, there's a huge literature on the authorship of John. Now, obviously, authorship doesn't automatically mean reportage. You'd be surprised. You You can have scholars who will say, yes, it was written by John, the son of Zebedee, who was Jesus' disciple, and he made this stuff up. You know what I mean? So, so it doesn't automatically follow that it's reportage, but it helps because at least he was in a position to know. He, he was in a position to tell you what really happened. So a um, lot of, lot of material on authorship, and I've had to address that. Um, I have a, an appendix on the theory by Richard Balcom that the gospel was written by a different guy named John. That you, you may mm. be familiar with that, right, yeah. who was also a disciple, but he was not somebody that's ever mentioned by name in, in the Gospels. That's his theory. Um, and I, I disagree with that. But um, I answer, I rebut, you know, various uh, criticisms of John. But then I also bring forward a bunch of positive evidence for the veracity and historicity of John. Mm. So it's fun. And for the for the reportage model of John and uh, it's it's going to be very controversial. Again, it's going to be very rousing. And I, I think um, I think people will enjoy it. So please follow me on Facebook. I just want to tell people you don't have to be my Facebook friend to follow me on Facebook. You can just you can just click follow and then you'll get my public content, but you won't have to hear what I had for supper. So you know, <laughs> not necessary. So well, anyway, I, I do appreciate the the dress up photos that you've been doing through the uh, through the decades uh, with, with your daughter. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, absolutely. I, I, I will say the controversy to me is whether or not the footnotes belong at the bottom of the page, because uh, hidden in plain view, I, I love I love. The, the subscripts at the bottom because I'm the one that goes, oh, that's really interesting. I want to read that book. And then I have to flip the back and I lose my spot. But you did it in Mirror in the Mask, so I appreciate that. took a reader poll, <laughs> a survey, footnotes versus endnotes, and they all said footnotes. And, you know, my feeling is I have a lot of URLs in my footnotes. 
because I, I footnote to YouTube uh, interviews that people have done online, because, I mean, we are living in the information age and these are living scholars. So if they've done an interview, I want to be able that, you know, to expound further on their views. I want to be yeah. able to footnote that. But you are also ugly, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know down in the footnote, you know. Um, but uh, I figure if my readers are willing to put up with the ugly footnotes in order to have, you know, the interesting footnotes, then that's up to them and I will do it that way. And it is footnotes in the eye of the beholder. You will be glad to know. So, yeah, (laughs) that's all I want. You you could, you could have the most uh, uh, heretical views. And if you have, if you have uh, notes at the bottom of your page, you know, you're, you're you're not an F uh, book. Okay, cool, cool. (laughs) uh, So I I was, I was trying to think of, 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 of other, other books uh, similar to yours that, that I would put on the shelf if I was uh, one of those crazy people that organized my bookshelf by genre. Crazy, um, but I, I, I viewed it in, in line of uh, uh, Michael J. Kruger's uh, Canon Revisited and the Question of the Canon, uh, kind of establishing kind of this historicity and accuracy of establishing the New Testament as intended by the authors and understood by the audience who received them. And and Mir- I think Mirror the Mass does that just just splendidly. I, I, I really appreciate the work that that you put into it, and um, it, it it might be it. If, if you're just a general reader of, of theology and, and, and uh, the, the show is to, to help people pick up those books that, that they might mm-hmm. be nervous about, this is one that you'll probably spend a, a, a while getting the arguments and, and, and reading through it and maybe um, pausing at each chapter and coming through. But I really thought that belonged on the shelf with um, uh, Kruger's books of, of just uh, yeah. bolstering up my confidence in, in uh, the historicity of, of the New Testament. Absolutely. And, and I would say I have chapter summaries. So to help yes. people not to be I've so notated all, <laughs> you know, not to be intimidated, you can always go feel free to go to the chapter summary first, even, mm-hmm. you know, and then read the chapter yeah. or skip the chapter. If you're like, I am so not interested in Plutarch, you know, OK, <laughs> skip the chapter on Plutarch, if you if you want to, that would be fine, you know, but but read the chapter summaries. Um, I also want to recommend a couple of other really accessible Please. books for your for your viewers. Um there's a book called Can We Trust the Gospels by um, Peter J. Williams, and he is the uh, principal of Tyndale House in England. He's a uh, very learned uh, British New Testament scholar. He did endorse the mirror of the mask, I am pleased to say. And um, But this book, Can We Trust the Gospels, is a slim volume. And I think that's cool that this this great British scholar can wear his learning so lightly and can pick out his facts and present them so engagingly and so accessibly. So I strongly advocate that one. And then a little book called Easter Enigma by John Wenham, the late John Wenham, um, New Testament scholar. He is uh, harmonizing the Easter accounts. Mm-hmm. Easter enigma. Now, I, I am not saying I endorse every harmonization he gives. When people go to harmonize, they don't always agree with one another. Um, and I'm not going to go into, into details about that, but I like a lot of them. I agree with most of them. And it's what we call in philosophy or also in science or in engineering, a proof of concept. So a proof of concept is where you show that something can be done. Right. That it's not just impossible. And that's what Wenham is doing. It's a proof of concept that the Easter narratives can be harmonized and they can be harmonized by using uh, legitimate 
historical imagination. And that gets such a bad rap nowadays. Like you're just some kind of crazy fundamentalist, but it's actually a really good historical practice to engage in, to harmonize. I harmonize Plutarch. Okay. So it's not just something I'm doing because I'm desperate to, you know, salvage the gospels or something. It's a very, very legitimate enterprise. So, um, I think that those two, I would just throw onto people's radar because they're, they're short and they're accessible, but they're really good. Great. Thank you. And, and uh, links to those books will be uh, included in the show notes and uh, on the website for this, uh, for this episode number. And the two books are hidden in plain view, undesigned quizzes in the gospels and acts and the mirror or the mask liberating the gospels from the literary devices. We've had the pleasure of talking to Dr. Lydia McGrew. Uh, from uh, probably half a town away, but uh, t- too far over the the interwebs. Well, we hope we'll we hope we'll be able to do it in person later. Yeah, absolutely. I'm looking forward to that. Thank you for having me. We appreciate okay. your time. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.